This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm superstar Frank Morano. I am a a big advocate of youth sports. I like sports both in the organized and disorganized manner. I think there's a lot to be said for children just meeting up on the street or in a playground somewhere and organizing games on their own. I think that's a wonderful thing. I think it is a really important character building skill. I think it teaches a lot about teamwork. I think it teaches a lot about leadership and it's fun. I am also a big believer in organized sports where adult coaches help youth athletes learn the game, not just learn the game, but learn about sportsmanship, learn about a whole bunch of other things. I think I'm a big advocate of children being engaged in some sort of sports. I think it's a great way to promote physical activity and to stay in shape. And I think it's a great way to uh, meet other people. I think it's social. I think it's physical. I think it's mental. I think it's emotional. I think so many of the lessons that I've learned in sports as a youngster, they have served me in real life. So I think part of the reason that we have coaches in youth sports is because they're supposed to act like adults. And that's why I was very disappointed at what occurred Friday when you had two high school football teams from Virginia face off against one another. Phoebus High School of Hampton and Jamestown High School of Williamsburg. You want to guess what the final score of this game was? You don't need a uh, Maple-style point spread to figure out who won. The final score of this game was 104 to nothing. Phoebus High School beat Jamestown 104 to nothing. But it's not just the final score, which I have an issue with, which I do, by the way. It's how the game ended. Phoebus High School was leading 98 to zero, 98 to nothing, 98 to zip, zilch, zero, nada. And they had a chance to run out the clock. 
there was 20, there was just a few seconds left in the game. They could have just snapped the ball and walked off the field and not added even more insult to injury. Instead, Phoebus High School went for more. They scored. Again, they were leading 98 to nothing. They scored on a a 28-yard touchdown pass on the game's final play to finish at 104 to nothing. Fans of the Phoebus Phantoms cheered at Darling Stadium in Hampton as the team eclipsed the 100-point mark, but that last-second touchdown, it did not sit well with the with coach of the opposing team, Scott Lambin. He told USA Today, I was hot. I didn't feel like I had to say anything, but I was hot. I completely agree with him. You're supposed to teach not only these kids how to win games. You're supposed to not only teach athleticism and the importance of plays, of the X's and O's. You're supposed to teach them how to be good sportsmen. And when you, first of all, to get to a 98 to nothing lead, you're not being a good sport. I think once you're ahead by 60 points, come on. I, I think you need to take it easy. You run the ball. You put in people that aren't typically starters. You don't run up the score like this. Th- this touchdown at the end of the game was, I think, the final indignity on a night where Jamestown trailed 56 to nothing at the end of the first quarter and 84 to nothing at halftime. Now, at that point, even when it's 84 to nothing, can't you just, I don't know, not keep scoring? So the coach of the winning team was reached by phone by USA Today, and he expressed regret about allowing his team to go for the touchdown on the final play. He told USA Today, it's going to eat me up. It's something that's going to stay with me. Well, then why did you do it? Why did you do it? What did he do? What was his answer for why you did it? His answer was to blame the kids. Phoebus's coach said under normal circumstances, his team would have taken a knee and run out the clock during a lopsided game, but then came Friday night. By the time we got to 98 points, I'm just like, Jesus, man, why is this game still going on? His players' reaction was decidedly different. After Phoebus took possession of the ball at the Jamestown 45-yard line and 3.44 to play, 3 minutes, 44 seconds. This is what the coach told the newspaper. The kids are all looking at me, and they're begging me like, Coach, can we have our shot at history? And, you know, for me, I'm like, I don't like it. I didn't like it, didn't care for it. And you're hearing the crowd, and they're begging me. With eight seconds left, the Phantoms snap the ball from shotgun formation. The team's third-string quarterback, so I guess they were putting in their third-stringers, launched a high-arching pass pulled in by a reserve-wide receiver who coasted into the end zone as the final second elapsed off the clock. Quote from the coach. 
I'll be honest with you, man. I told the boys at the end when I broke them down, I'm happy for them and I did it for them. But that's not one of my better moments. I haven't smiled about it. I haven't accepted a congratulations about it. I just don't feel good about it. Well, again, that's why you're the coach. If the kids and the fans are saying, let us go for 100, let us uh, let us go into history, you're in history. You are now being known in history as being a bunch of jerks. And really, the person I blame is the coach. The coach should absolutely not have let them run this ball for a touchdown or uh, go, go for a touchdown play. That's my view. I think this is degrading and insulting. And look, when you have a team that Phoebus was 10-0 and with seven shutouts, Jamestown entered the game 1-9. and so this wasn't really a matchup that should have that where the teams were evenly matched. So the game got out of hand as soon as it started. Jamestown committed turnovers on the first play of each of their three possessions, and Phoebus led twenty to nothing just forty eight seconds into the game. Do you have to keep going? I don't think you do. I think the um if you have to play all four quarters, you gotta take it easy. They should absolutely not have kept scoring touchdowns. That's my view. You agree? You disagree? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. You're certainly welcome to comment on uh, any other issue that we have touched upon thus far. Kevin is in North Carolina. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Frank. You really hit the nail on the head with the uh, the sportsmanship. You couldn't have put it better. Thanks. Absolutely, absolutely loved it. Also, I love. I was really totally impressed with the interview with uh, Miss Josephs. Um, she's really got it together in a big way, and uh, it, it was it was a very gratifying uh, interview to hear. And, I appreciate um, that. That's nice here. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, you're you're really on a roll tonight. And, and and she is so well versed, and so um, she she gets her point across with all this. It you know, and it, it makes me feel good, especially when you hear about all this other stuff going on. And uh, yeah, you, you should really try to have her on again. She's she's really good. Yeah, no, she's great. She um she does usually like the late hours, which is the only reason we don't have her on more regularly. But I'll uh, I'll see if maybe we can coax her into a few more late nights. Uh, but she is terrific. I agree with you. I've known her a long time. I've interviewed her many times over the years, and uh, I have never been disappointed, uh, even when I end up disagreeing with her. But I've never been disappointed in anything she has to say. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I am eager to hear if you agree with me on the uh, high school football thing, but there's another scandal in the world of sports involving the Michigan coach, the coach of the Michigan Wolverines, Jim Harbaugh. And uh, a big shout-out, by the way, to our listeners listening in Detroit on AM 910, the Superstation. And Jim Harbaugh was suspended as the coach of the Wolverines, he addressed this on uh, on Friday and then again Monday at a press conference about how he learned about his suspension. Apparently, he had violated rules when it came to recruiting. 
and he is being accused of um, not just not just recruiting violations. He is being accused of having Michigan attend other opponents' games and steal signs of what they were trying to do. So they suspended Michigan's Jim Harbaugh, who is kind of a legendary football coach. See, now we're talking college, not high school. With From the final three regular season games, beginning with last Saturday, it all came down on Friday. And the announcement came after the league, the Big Ten, said they uh, received credible information that the Wolverines had been involved in a sign-stealing game where you have, uh, which has been prohibited under college football rules for almost 30 years. So some supporters of Jim Harbaugh are saying he got a raw deal, he didn't get a proper hearing, and it's not even necessarily clear that he knew about the sign-stealing. Because since the beginning, Harbaugh denied knowledge of this sign-stealing scheme. He said he never instructed staff members to break NCAA rules. I have to tell you, I don't know anything or about college football. I can't tell you the last time I watched a college football game. It's probably the team that uh, Deion Sanders is coaching. But it's very rare. Very rare. And I, I just... There's something about injustice that I just can't stand. And to me, it looks like Jim Harbaugh, the coach here, got a raw deal that he should have never have been suspended for this when it's not clear that he was involved in this sign stealing. I I think um, maybe I was mistaken when I mentioned recruiting as well. Uh, That might have been a separate article that I read. So I don't know. Curious if you actually know anything about it and would like to add your two cents on it. 800-848-9222. JR is in Brooklyn. Hi, JR. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Listen, I coach uh, youth sports, but little guys, like uh, 8 to 10-year-olds, and they can be tough to control. Sure. But they're very young, and they don't know the difference. But some of these coaches are really nothing more than like a glorified gym teacher or – They are peaked in high school athletes who are chasing the same glory and think that they're still in high school. So the fact that he can, he, he's blaming the students and blaming the players for that is absolutely ridiculous. He could have slowed that game down with timeouts. He could have slowed that game down a thousand different ways. He's, he's in total control of that game and he's double guilty than the players are. So you agree with me. There's absolutely no excuse for this. Yeah, there's no excuse for it. Like I said, I'm, I'm involved in youth sports at a younger level, uh, multiple different teams, and there are uh, hundreds of ways to delay a game. You can take penalties every third down. There's uh, there's no way he's losing control. And I can see the students wanting to get it. They're high schoolers. Sure, me too. They, they, yeah, no question about it. But at no point are they real. even though he puts the third string in, his third string is better than the opposing team's first string. Call timeout. Take a penalty. There's a, put your center in. As There's a hundred ways he could have stopped it. He's a glorified player. They really think they're still in high school. 
when they coach high school sports. You know, that's such a good point, and I, I didn't think of that, but that's my observation in many of, first of all, some of the, the people that I went to high school with and seeing how they, uh, they behaved later on, uh, that's my observation. And some of the people that I know who have coached high school football and maybe other sports as well, that's exactly their mentality. There's a tremendous lack of maturity there. I don't think there's any excuse for this. Thanks, JR. 800-848-9222. Original Rick is in Original Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. I'm not a big sports guy. In fact, I don't like sports at all, but I, I do know business. And it sports has now become a business, a profession, a very well-paying profession. And now that they're paying college kids to make good money in sports, that used to be the precursor to pro college. Your stats really mattered if the pros are going to take you or not. Now that's been delegated to the high school because high school is now the precursor to making a lot of money in college. Mm. And that guy who threw the, the, the football, he now has another touchdown to his stats. The runner who ran the football in, he now has another. It's all about the money now because those stats really matter to get into college because you can make almost as much money in college sports as you can in pro. There's no limit to what you can make. Well, let's say you're right, Rick, right? What... I'm not right. Okay, I'm but... not right, Frank. You know, you're right. You're absolutely no, no, no. right. Well, no, but let's say you are. What would have What would it have hurt anybody if they didn't go for that final touchdown on the last play? What the the the, the uh, quarterback wouldn't have gotten that extra touchdown on his stat. All about stats. You got to keep on pushing and pushing because you might have that one guy might have not been ch- uh, chosen by a college because he had lower touchdown stats than the guys. Who yeah, did you know, Rick, I, I really don't think so. Just because a okay. a a, t- a, t- a ten and O team. Beat yeah. going against a team that has won one game. Oh, it was a ten and zero team. I right. No college recruiter is going to judge the quarterback uh, whether or not they get a scholarship or whether they get recruited to a college team based on their behavior in this game. Just because it's such a lopsided matchup. Your point, though, well, about the uh, the pressure to put up stats to get into a good college. I get that. I guess that makes sense. I just don't know that that necessarily excuses this kind of behavior. In this well, it doesn't excuse it. It's just a reason. There's, yeah. there's a difference between excuses and reasons. And I think the reason is now it's all about my future, and you you, you didn't allow me to get another touchdown I could have. And, you know, he would have taken uh, a lot of slack from his own players maybe. You know? Yeah. Well, well, clearly the players they wanted to go for it, and I believe that. Thank you, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Steve Maglio coming up in just about ten minutes. Uh, there was one other su- pseudo sports story that I wanted to mention. What was Babe Ruth's first baseball team? Well, if you know nothing about baseball, chances are you think it's the Yankees. If you know a little bit about baseball, chances are you think it was the Red Sox. Well, the actual answer was the Baltimore Orioles. And uh, actually, if you go to Camden Yards, they made a museum out of Babe Ruth's house that I visited about uh, 30 years ago. It was really impressive. I loved it. I can't wait to go back. And uh, we have a lot of great listeners there at WCBM that I'd love to meet. But uh, the Orioles were not a major league team when Babe Ruth played for them, but he did play for them prior to the Red Sox. And there was a Baltimore paperboy 
who sold newspapers in on the streets of Baltimore in 1914, probably for one or two cents each. Along the way, he collected baseball cards of Baltimore Orioles players included in that day's paper. They would have cards of the players that they'd put in the paper. And imagine, you know, these are not major leaguers, so this is totally just for fun. And this paper boy treasured these cards, particularly one for a player, a pitcher, 19-year-old pitcher for the minor league Baltimore Orioles by the name of George Herman Ruth. Treasured this card for years. Eventually passed all these cards down to his son. That Babe Ruth card is now one of only a handful still around. And soon it will be auctioned off for the first time since it was issued 109 years ago. It is expected to fetch at least several million dollars and could potentially compete for the title of priciest baseball card ever, a record currently held by a Mickey Mantle rookie card, which sold for $12.6 million last year. Archibald Davis was the paper boy who was 16 years old at the time. He grew up to play semi-professional baseball himself, and he passed the cards down to his son, who passed them on to his son. And now Glenn Davis, who's Archibald's grandson, remembered playing with them as he grew up in the 50s and 60s. He wrote in an email to the Baltimore Sun, certainly had we known how valuable they would become, we would have handled them with more care. So after a century of ownership, including many years in which the card was on loan to the Babe Ruth Museum that I just mentioned, the Davis family sold the cards to a private collector in 2021, and that collector is now auctioning it off beginning Friday in what is expected to draw eye-popping bids as one of the most expensive cards ever sold. Why is this so expensive? This card is from 1914. It is rare. It was issued in both red and blue. There are only 10 known to exist in either color. For example, the card that used to be the most expensive card that was ever sold, Honus Wagner, the tobacco card, there are at least 50 of those cards around. Secondly, the card is the first collectible card of Babe Ruth as a baseball player, issued before he'd ever played a Major League Baseball game. At the time, he was playing for his hometown team and listed as a pitcher. So before this online-only auction begins, the card is going to be displayed in Baltimore once more at the Babe Ruth Birthplace and Museum. They're going to host a showing of the card Wednesday from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., so that's tomorrow afternoon. So unless you have a couple of million dollars, seeing it tomorrow is probably the closest you're ever going to get to this card. So very interesting. I think that's way cool. Patricia is in Brooklyn. Hello, Patricia. Good morning, Frank. Once again, I commend you. You did some wonderful interview with Larry Elder. You really have owned your skills. You don't ask stupid leading questions. You don't gold people. You're very polite. And I learn. I always learn when I listen to you. So I just want to say good morning and thank you again. Oh, that's so nice of you, Patricia. I really appreciate that. Okay. You be well, kiddo. Thank, thank you, Patricia. That's nice. Well, way too many uh, 
Way too many kind callers today. They'd never make it in our Facebook group, that's for sure. Uh, yesterday, by the way, I didn't mention this, it was National Kindness Day. So hopefully you did something kind. All right, uh, those of you that are holding, we'll try and get to you. Scrapper, Brandon, Charlie, and To Be Determined, I think it's Jeff. The rest of you, we will uh, chat with you a little bit later. I'm going to talk music and more with Steve Maglio in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Vitama Tepinarov Cream 1% is a prescription topical treatment for adults with plaque psoriasis. Do not use if you're allergic to Vitama Cream. The most common side effects, red raised bumps around the hair pores, pain or swelling in the nose and throat, skin rash or irritation, itching and redness, peeling, burning or stinging, headache and flu. Tell your doctor about all the medicines you take and if you're pregnant or plan to be, ask your doctor if Vitama Cream is right for you. You deserve more from your topical. Go to Vitama Dot com. That's V-T-A-M-A dot com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru. In Llama Land, there's a one-man band, and he'll toot his flute for you. Come on, fly with me. Let's take off in the blue. The great Frank Sinatra. If you are a fan of Frank Sinatra, you will absolutely love the music of Stephen Maglio. Not only uh, does Stephen Maglio sing a lot of uh, Frank Sinatra's songs, but he really seems to have such a passion for the music and the stylings of Frank Sinatra, even though he sort of brings his own unique swing of things to all of the great Sinatra tunes. He is a uh, terrific crooner and a singer of standards. He performs all over the world. We're going to tell you how you could see him in the New York area sooner rather than later. I am thrilled to welcome him back to the program. Stephen, it's great to talk to you again. Hey, Frank. Good to be here. So I know you're performing with your big band orchestra, which has a very clever name, 
not just Sinatra. Um, <laughs> uh, why, why, how did you guys get this moniker, not just Sinatra? Everyone loves Sinatra, and you've been so associated with such great Sinatra music. Why include not in a lot of the uh, promotion around this upcoming show that you're doing? Well, that's because I have become so closely associated with him. For the past, let me see, I started singing 21 years ago. And most of the shows that I do are Sinatra tribute shows. Once people hear my voice, they want to hear the Sinatra stuff. But every once in a while, I get a request for somebody to say, when are you going to do something different? You know, something about other things. So do Dean Martin, do Sammy Davis. So we decided to do this show, but I didn't want to leave the Sinatra name out of the show because obviously that gets attention. So we're singing Sinatra songs, but not just Sinatra. We mix it up a little bit. Well, that's great. So that's going to be uh, November 16th and December 17th at the Cutting Room here in New York, which is a a terrific room. And um, I know it's still a show that uh, Sinatra fans are going to enjoy. But what other musical stylings will people enjoy if they're going to come to the show on the 16th? Uh, well, on this show on the 16th, let me see, we're going to be doing a Beatles song, believe it or not. Oh, I believe uh, it. Yeah, we're going to be doing uh, some of the Sinatra things that he did with Antonio Carlos Jobim. Because we have people that come and see the show. This show is becoming a series now. We're going to be doing it once a month. And so um, we get people, I told people, if you want to come to the show, if you want to request something, just let me know what you want to hear. We'll have the, the chart written for it for the big band. And we'll put it in the show, and then you come and you just bring 40 of your friends, and we'll sing it for you. (laughs) That's great. And so people have been making requests. So one friend of ours said, uh, he called me up, he said, I want to hear Change Partners that uh, that Frank did with uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim. He said, but I could only get eight friends. Is that okay? I said, yeah, eight friends is okay. Come on. We'll do it for you. So we're going to be doing that one. Uh, Go ahead. um, So we we include uh, Engelbert Humperdinck. We do Dean Martin. We do... uh, uh, Tony Bennett, Nat Cole, we, we mix it up a lot. And you, we've been talking about the comparisons with Frank Sinatra. For people that haven't heard you before, and uh, they could see you November 16th and December 17th at the Cutting Room, you also perform every every week at the uh, Carnegie Club, a terrific spot that I go to pretty regularly. You're not a Frank Sinatra impersonator, right? No, no. That's the worst thing you could do is say that you're an impersonator. Because, uh, well, unless you really are an impersonator, mm-hmm. but to, to try and say that you're going to get up on the stage and you're going to be Frank Sinatra. So if you go into a show and somebody comes out and says, how did all these people get in my room? Get up and walk out. Because <laughs> it's not going to be any good at that point. Nobody can match Frank. One of the reasons that I love talking with you and promoting what you're doing is because the classic old school nightclub show is something that you don't really see that much anymore. Back in right. the day at the 500 Club in Atlantic City, you heard all about it. Uh, days, The days of the Copa, that was the place to be. This is a, an increasingly rare thing these days, isn't it? Right, it is. And what we're doing now that makes it special, I mean, at the Carnegie Club, we always had an 11th piece band. But here we, we have a 12-piece band. They added a guitar, and we have a conductor. So that really keeps everything nice and tight. And you don't see that in nightclubs anymore. All the nightclubs, are the, the, the rooms are usually small with low ceilings, so you can't put a big band in there. You'll go and see maybe three or four pieces tops. And, and uh, so the big band arrangements is really something special. Is that because of expense? People don't want to pay the money for a, a, uh, an elaborate band? 
Well, that not only they don't want to pay the money for the elaborate bands, but the club owners don't want to have to rent these big places because the rents are so high. So it, it increases everything. When you have a big band in the room, you have to have a lot of space. So you mentioned club is a small room, but we have you like you know we got a thirty foot ceiling in there. Mm. So the sound could you could blast the sound in there. You can't do that in a smaller club. You mentioned uh, Engelbert Humperdinck songs, Sinatra songs. Clearly, a lot of these songs that you're going to be performing are songs that the audience has has heard before. How do you manage to infuse your own style and your own personality into these songs that people know so well and that have been made famous by other artists? It's just a natural thing. It just it just happens. The, the, the songs that you, I've been listening all my life that I always wanted to perform and just didn't get the chance to do it. And now I'm getting the opportunity and I'm loving it. I'm having a, a great time with it. And it just, it's like putting on a, an old pair of slippers, you know, because I've been singing these songs along with the record for years. And it there's still a little bit of the original artist in there. You're always going to see that. But there's a little bit of me because I feel like it's my song too because I've yeah. been singing it so long, you know. At the Carnegie Club, obviously, the thing that I think one of the one of the things anyway that's unique about seeing you there is that uh, people can smoke cigars, which they can't do yeah. really at any indoor venue these days. But uh, at cigars and cigarettes. Oh, really? Cigars okay. and cigarettes. I, I used to that. I used to joke I used to joke and say you could smoke anything that's legal in the state of New York, but I can't say that anymore. Yeah, now so, everything. So we have to say just cigars and cigarettes. That's all you can smoke. So, um, but as far as this cutting room show goes on uh, November 16th, what makes that venue, which is certainly historic and certainly iconic, what makes that special for people that haven't been there before? What's going to be so unique about you performing there? Uh, Again, it's the open space because there there is no, um, it's it's a a high ceiling. It's great sound. The stage is is big to, enough to fit the, the the band. You don't have to add little pieces here and there, or, or have the the bass player off in a corner someplace. Everybody is on the stage with the with the full piano, not not just the keyboard, with a full piano. And um, and the way the tables are set up, it just has the old fashioned, almost like a speakeasy kind of feel, because you walk into the bar area first, and then you walk into the separate room, which is the club. Even though it's a big open doorway. It still feels like you're walking. You, the bar is a little more lit, so when you're walking into the club room, it's like a little darker with, mm. the, with the stage lights and all, and it gives that kind of speakeasy feel, almost like when you when you watched um, Goodfellas when they, they go through oh, the sure. and everything, and then all of a sudden they wind up in the, in the nightclub, and, it, it, and it's like, wow, look at this, you know. Or the first time you walked in when you were a kid, I'm sure you knew the first time you walked into Yankee Stadium or Shea Stadium at the time, you're walking through the hallway and everything, and all of a sudden you come through the doorway, and wow, there's the ballpark. You know, and you get that feeling. That's what it's like when you walk into the cutting room. You go through the bar into the showroom, and it's like, yeah, this is what the Copacabana used to be. This this is what I've been missing. What I, the stories that I've been hearing about, this is it. I'm here. As far as I know, uh, all the songs that Frank Sinatra performed, I, I don't think he wrote any of them, but you listen to his performance in so many of these songs, and you think he could be singing about an experience in his own life. And there are yeah. so many artists that draw from personal experiences in the music that they're performing. Are there any particular songs in your repertoire that hold a special meaning for you? And if so, what are they? Uh, special meaning, I would say, uh, my kind of town, you know, Chicago is my kind of town is special to me because that was the first song 
that I heard when I was a kid that turned me on to Frank. And then when I finally got the nerve to get up on a stage for the first time in karaoke night, that was the song that I sang. And I wanted to put in a contest. I won a hundred bucks. And that's what got me started. Uh, started going around to different karaoke nights and then eventually being hired by uh, Joe Battaglia, the New York big band. And I, uh, and I opened the tavern on the green. So my kind of town is kind of like a, a lucky charm song for me. But when people say, what's your favorite Sinatra song to sing? I really couldn't pick one. There's just so many. I couldn't, couldn't do it. That's great. That's great. Yeah. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Stephen Maglio. You can see him this Thursday night at the Cutting Room. Uh, you can also uh, check him out every every Saturday at the Carnegie Club. Hey, Stephen, if people want to come see you uh, this Thursday at the Cutting Room, what's the best place for them to go to get tickets? They could go to thecuttingroomnyc.com. Or they can go to my website, stephenmaglio.com, on the show's page. There's a there's a link. I also have, I just thought, I had uh, Facebook. I have a Stephen Maglio page and a Stephen Maglio fan page. But I just started, it just went live uh, recently, a Not Just Sinatra page. And so that's got pictures and videos of all the, the shows that we're doing. Every month we, we do a mashup video to so people can see clips of, of the show that they missed so that they could come to, come to the next one. So all of that, there's a Not Just Sinatra Facebook page now. If you listen to what you do, I think everybody would describe it as as crooning. That art of of crooning, it's much less prevalent in popular music today than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. It does survive maybe with people like Michael Buble, but so much of what's in popular music these days a lot of times it's processed a lot of times there's some you know uh, there's a technological element uh, the voice isn't necessarily the the star tell me what you view as the future of crooning and the type of music that you perform do you see a the rubber band snapping back at all are you seeing more of a return to crooning or is this just a, a diminishing art yeah, it's it's gonna last, but it's going. The audience is gonna shrink a little bit. Uh, it's gonna kind of kind of be like uh, like Beethoven. Uh-huh. You know, he was big in his time, but now there's this. He's still popular, but there's a limited audience. He's not, you know, you're not gonna see anybody playing Beethoven in Madison Square Garden, but you could go to Lincoln Center and see it. You know, so the Sinatra thing and the whole crooning thing is gonna it's gonna survive. But it's going to be a smaller audience that has to go and, and seek it out. All right. Well, people, because, could... like you said, the electronics and everything else. You can't. When years ago, when you had guys like Al Jolson, who there were no microphones, they had a belt. Then the microphones came out, and that's where the crooning started because you didn't have the belt anymore. You had the yeah. electronics to get the voiceover. But the the bands were playing more smoothly for the for the singers. Now the rock and roll groups and everything, the, the hip hop and all the stuff, they, the the beat is just so loud. You have to sing loud to get over it. You can't even sing low and the electronics carry over. You have to actually sing loud. So it is, like you said, a dying art. And uh, I just hope I'm not the one that kills it. (laughs) We're out there. We're out there making it happen. Yeah, no way, no how. Hey, if people are just tuning in, we've been talking with Stephen Maglio. His website is stephenmaglio.com. That's Stephen with a V, M-A-G-L-I-O. You can see him uh, this Thursday night at the Cutting Room. Also, he's going to be performing next month as well. And uh, you could certainly check him out every Saturday at the Carnegie Club. Stephen, appreciate you checking. before, Before I go, just let me say, we have also at the Cutting Room, we have a comedian. That are opening up each show, and we're going to have uh, Tammy Pescatelli this month, this Thursday, and uh, next month in December we got Tom Carter. Oh, Tom Carter yeah. is one of my favorites. Tom yeah, 
Wow. So so that's another reason to come and, and see. Like I said, we want to make the old Copa shows, and they always opened with a comedian. So that's what we're doing. The there is nobody funnier than Tom Cotter. That's going to be. Cotter, I'm going to really try and get to that show. Stephen, it's always a treat to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Stephen Maglio, you want to comment on any portion of our conversation or anything else we've covered today, you certainly can do so at 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. A birthday bumper music selection from none other than Rachel Yellen. Hey, we're going to go through your mail. Well, the mail you've sent to me next hour. If you have a comment that you would like read on the air, as opposed to calling in to be heard to talk about it, you can email me at frank.morano. That's frank.m-o-r-a-n-o at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Last Friday, as I was leaving the radio station, my colleague at WABC in New York, Sid Rosenberg, who does a great job, came over to me. He's the morning man there. He came over to me and says, uh, you know, I saw, he talked about it on the air. So he says, I saw one of the most amazing films that I've ever seen. You have to see it. I said, what is it? He said, it's the documentary about Alan Dershowitz. He said, this was so well done, so well made. And he said, especially you, meaning me, your your love of history and the the fact that you know Alan and that these are all the people that are interviewed in the documentary, a lot of them are people that you know you will absolutely love this. He totally sold me on it. I said, all right, I have to find a way to see it. He tells me the theater that it's performing at, and I don't know when I'm going to get to get to go to the movies again. My schedule's all backwards. I, I don't know when I could do a movie day. But I looked into it. I spoke to Dershowitz about it. It sounds really interesting. And it turns out it's, the, it's called The Trials of Alan Dershowitz. I am so interested in learning about this. So I do a little more research and I reach out to the filmmaker and the filmmaker a fellow named John Curtin says that he'd love to come on this show tomorrow. So he's going to be here tomorrow. So I said, uh, John, you know, I haven't seen the film yet. I haven't had an opportunity to, I'm not going to have an opportunity to go to the movies and see it by Tuesday. 
is there any way that you could send me a screener? So he sends me a screener, and it's one of those things where it's a link that we have to put in a password. And I don't want to watch this movie on my computer screen. And my wife, I think, would be interested in it as well. So I'd love to watch it with her. So we spent last night a good 20 to 30 minutes trying to figure out a way to get this film on our television set. Lo and behold, we were able to, what they call, mirror her iPhone so that it was playing on her phone but projected onto the television. It wasn't perfect in terms of the the proportionality, the aspect ratio, but it was decent. We can, We could watch most of it. But because I had to, you know, get stuff done and leave and we took so long figuring out how to get it mirrored on the television we couldn't watch the whole thing so we saw about the first 40 minutes of it and it is quite good here's a little bit of the trailer to the trials of alan dershowitz i think of myself as an attorney for the damned Pound for pound, the best lawyer I know. One of the top defense attorneys in the country. A ferocious litigator and advocate. The most famous lawyer of his generation. He delights in picking the one that everyone hates. He would have represented Hitler. Some people call him a showboat, but when the chips are down, a lot of people call him. Professor Dershowitz, how good of you to come. I thrive on taking cases where people say these are the worst people in the world. It's impossible to win. Not guilty. I wanted to be the best defense lawyer in the world. Bernard talent would be invaluable for some very rich defendants. I was just fighting for my life. And there are a lot of very, very rich people who do some horrible things. O.J. Simpson's ex-wife, Nicole, savagely killed in a knife attack. My job as a lawyer is not to see that justice is done. We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty of the crime of murder. You've got blood on your hands, Alan Dershowitz. Mike Tyson charged today with rape. My role is to defend the most unpopular and even the most guilty of defendants. Alan Dershowitz, these guys, all of them. They say there's no crime. He didn't need Donald Trump to be famous. And unfortunately, Donald Trump has made him infamous. The lawyer for Donald Trump? Alan, this is not who you used to be. People write me all the time saying, I used to admire you, now I despise you. And I always have the same response. You were wrong to admire me. You didn't know who I was. So I thought it was, uh, I, we're not, I'm not finished watching it yet, but so far we're really enjoying it. And I'm looking forward to interviewing the filmmaker tomorrow. And uh, there's a lot of voices of people that I'm friends with and a lot of people that you would recognize. The uh, My friend Ron Kuby is in the documentary. My friend Arthur Idala is in the documentary. And what I like about this so far, again, maybe the second half will change my mind, but what I like about this is that it's not a 90-minute 
tribute to Alan Dershowitz. There's people in the film saying critical things of him. There's people saying negative things about him. And that, to me, is a balanced, interesting documentary. Not something that's supposed to be, not a love letter. So I think it's really interesting. If you want to see it, it is in theaters now. It's called The Trials of Alan Dershowitz. It's playing at this theater in the village as part of um, as part of this uh, festival out there. But uh, I'll I'm going to talk with the filmmaker about it tomorrow. I'll see when it's going to be in broader release. It's part of Doc NYC. So uh, I'm enjoying it so far. I'm looking forward to the interview tomorrow. So stay tuned for that tomorrow. And uh, Brandon is in New Jersey. He's been patiently holding. Hi, Brandon. Hey, good morning, Frank. Morning. I uh, I have to. Uh disagree with you on the, the football team. How dare you? That, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> um, I mean, I think original Rick was spot on. I mean, you know, the stats are like, you know, a resume for for the um, sports world. And I get what you're saying. It might not make that big of a difference. But even putting that aside, like the chance to break 100, I mean, that's that's like a uh, that's a big thing. And, and uh, especially like in a world today full of you know, snowflakes, I think, I think it's a good thing. It's competitive sports. I mean, think about it in um, baseball terms. Like, you know, say the Mets are beating the Yankees, you know, 20 nothing. Are they going to start punting the ball and, you know, hitting, uh, well, you know but, what I mean? First of all, I think in baseball, I think if you're ahead by 10 runs and you reach first base in the eighth inning, I don't think you should then try to steal second and third base because I think that is the definition of just of showboating and trying to insult the other team. But I I get where you're coming from. I think it is a competitive game. But once a game is 98 to nothing, it's not competitive. It's it's a lopsided. It's a lopsided exercise in showing why one team should not have been on the field with that other team at the same time. I hear what you're saying. Does your son play sports at all? Uh, he was playing uh, soccer. I, I hated soccer growing up, but uh, <laughs> he. I guess he takes after me because he, he quit. But uh, I'm trying to get him into baseball. Baseball is always my sport, so. Well, yeah, I'd be curious um, if you end up coaching any of his teams, how uh, how you would handle a uh, a similar situation. What do you think you would do? Well, it depends on the age. I mean, these are these were high school kids, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, if it was you know, say like um, anything below like Babe Ruth or anything like that, you know, I'd probably um, you know err on your side. I mean. But to me, it's like, you know, good sportsmanship is more about how you handle the winning and handle the losing, not so much what the score is at the end of the game. Uh, fair enough, Brandon. I'm going to give you the last word. Thank you. Uh, for the rest of you, we will take your calls next hour. Gnome Layden is here. And the mail. The mail is always very, very boisterous. And I'm sure today will be no exception. Until next hour, your influence counts. So use it.